take me seriously when I'm serious. So I, I do have trouble. One of my problems, I have many problems. I hope you do too. One of my problems is getting started at the beginning of the evening. Forrest is nodding with recognition. Yes, I've been through this before. He's really weird at the beginning of the night. I think it's because I need to meditate before I talk. I mean, I did meditate today, but it wore off. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it does, you know, it wears off. So anyway, um, but welcome to Spirit Rock. This is uh, one of the high points of my month coming out here for the second Friday. And uh, the day long, some of you were here for the day long on December 27th, and it, it feels like a nice start to the new year to be together here again and starting this cycle, you know, I, 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 um, you know, in the twelve-step world, you know, we kind of do these things where you'll be in step studies that work on the step of the month. So working on step one. So I was thinking about maybe talking on that topic tonight, although maybe not. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But um, but there is this quality of of renewal that you know is in the, in the most sort of banal ways is uh, characterized by the new year's resolution uh, but but i think for there's something about sort of coming through the holidays and and that we often uh, resolution or not feel like we want to kind of get things in line again ducks in a row that's a, an expression that uh, i don't know it's it sort of makes sense but I don't know much about ducks, so. Um, uh, but I'm also I'm I, I sort of I find that I, I can get engaged. I think if you'll if you'll indulge me for a couple minutes because we're going to meditate, so don't worry, it won't be long. But um, when I was a teenager, I started to um, experience cycles of depression, and they would typically start in the late fall. I lived on the East Coast. November was just was depressing, so it was easy to get depressed. Uh, and then you sort of go through the holidays, and you know you sort of get that elation, but then the crash. And even before I was using, but then once I started using and drinking, uh, there was more of that. And and then uh, you know I um, I dropped out of high school in January, you know, and and then the following January, it was like several years in a row. I like I dropped out couple times kept going back but this year, this time of year then even as I got out of my teen years you know I was always afraid of and still went through certain cycles of depression and um, so I kind of uh, one of the things you learn if you're depressive and there's probably about 90 of them here uh, is that one of the best counters to depression is being active and, and and so, because uh, when I was a teenager, particularly when I felt depressed, I thought what I need to do is lie down and do nothing and ruminate about how bad I feel. And, uh, you know, having learned that well, I need to do just the opposite of that, I have this kind of tendency, like January comes and I'm like, okay, before you start getting depressed, you better get to work. So I'm kind of engaged. And, and now that becomes a very... 
uh, something I kind of looked forward to. So I was kind of looking forward to January because I knew I was going to get uh, to work on the book that I'm doing on daily reflections. And uh, and then I, I've, uh, I've started uh, writing some music and I'm thinking about doing an acoustic guitar album. So, uh, you know, because if you've, some of you know my Laughing Buddha album, which is really rock music, but sort of Buddhist lyrics. And I always think that, like, people who don't know what it is, and they think, oh, Buddhist music, I'll put it on and meditate. And then it's like, well, that's not what I was expecting. So I thought maybe I would give people something more like what they might expect from a Buddhist, something mellow. So I'm writing writing songs on my my guitar, my my Martin, and uh, so um, so yeah. There's this kind of freshness, even though we're still in the winter and still kind of uh, uh, cycling through that. Also noticing, I don't know how many people notice uh, the sun staying up a little later each day, you know. And there's that. That's the uh, a friend of mine years ago. You know, the one of the things she told me, uh, obvious, but that I never really thought about that kind of helps me again at this time of year was, you know, as soon as you hit December 21st, the days start getting longer again. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. And it's slow, but but just to appreciate that. So, well, I've I've spent a lot of time on that. I hope that doesn't feel like a waste. But, uh, you know, I have been criticized at times for talking about myself a lot as a teacher, but, uh, um, you know, just, uh, I hope you know that when I do that, it's not to indulge in talking about myself, but rather in the hope that my experience has some kind of uh, something that people relate to, and that by talking about it openly and kind of um, trying to reflect on it, that that it's helpful for other people too. Because uh, otherwise, I just like write a memoir, you know, and and I'm not doing that next year. So, okay. So let's meditate, uh, and I'll, I'll give some as as usual. I'll give some uh, instruction to kind of get us started and settled, and then I'll leave some quiet time. Settling into a comfortable posture. Sitting in a way that you can be relaxed and alert. Sitting upright. Feeling the balance of the body, the alignment of the spine, the neck head and shoulders. You can sit with your eyes closed or just lower the gaze.
So we'll we'll kind of work our way towards the breath, towards focusing on the breath. But I like to start by doing a bit of a process of settling and one in which we really acknowledge, bring mindfulness to our present moment experience in a kind of general way before trying to kind of calm the mind with attention to the breath. So starting by just feeling your body sitting. If you can relax any points of tension. Relax the shoulders, soften the belly. Let the jaw be soft. As you release, you might have a sense of the body being drawn to the earth, kind of feeling the density and weight of the body. Also being aware of the energetic quality of the body. So one way of experiencing the body is as a field of energy. Although we certainly think of it and experience it as a solid thing, on the felt level, the sensed level, All those sensations are forms of energy, are expressions of energy. This is the aliveness of the body. Just letting the attention kind of pass over the body. Seeing how there are many different points of sensation, different qualities of sensation. There's awareness of the body and then opening awareness to sound. This is a very quiet space, but you can pick up certain sounds.
maybe hearing the fans from the heat, sounds of other people, sounds in your own body, your breath or your heart or just the sound in your ears, the humming kind of white noise. Starting to understand the attitude of mindfulness, which is one of curiosity and exploration. Normally, we don't sit somewhere and just listen to things, unless it's something like music. by putting our attention on sound. We bring the mind into the present moment. We engage with this moment, with what is in this moment. Not a thought or a memory, but a direct experience. There's awareness of body and sensations, awareness of sound. And on a more subtle level, see if you can tune into your mood or present emotion. What are you feeling right now? is a realm that's so important, particularly important in our spiritual growth, in our emotional intelligence. We become more aware of the moods and emotions that pass through us. to open to them, to hold them, not to judge them, also not to be overly reactive to those feelings. The critical aspect of the meditative training, it applies very broadly in our lives. So if you were to tell someone how you feel right now, see what that would be. It might not really be easy to describe. 
So maybe it's not something you can put into words. Maybe it can only be felt. sometimes putting a label on our feelings reifies things that don't really have meaning or real importance. It can just be known and felt and let go. Awareness of the body, of sound, of mood. It encompasses much of our moment-to-moment experience. As we're meditating, we don't try to exclude these things some element of sensation or sound or mood becomes strong, we open to it and allow it to come through, explore it, try to hold it gently, kindly, fearlessly. But in order to give us a specific Ongoing focus, we use the breath. And the breath also can be a tool for letting go of thoughts and any disturbance, agitation. Start to pay attention to the sensations of the breath. Feeling the breath either at the nostrils the touch of air coming in and out, or the movement of the belly, the rising and falling. Whichever point is easier for you to be with, feels more natural, let this become your object of meditation or of concentration. breath, in and out, moment by moment.
naturally when you try to do something as simple as to pay attention to the breath or the present moment, our mind complicates it, our mind gets busy. Thoughts invade. That's part of our practice is to see that. Really, probably the most common and insistent part of our practice is the wandering mind. So we notice the thought at some point. Realize you're thinking and acknowledge that, see that without chasing it. And then gently, kindly coming back to the breath, reconnecting, letting the breath calm the body, letting the breath release the thought.
right. Um, I'd like to open it up for questions after the sit, just to see if there are particularly questions about meditation practice uh, that anyone has. Well, we're going to ask you to use microphones. Sure. Thank um, you. So during this sit, something that I noticed was, um, you know, I'm trying to really be present in my body and just with, you know, everything that's going on around me. Then there are moments where I feel like I just am not in my body. Mm-hmm. I'm not sleeping, but I just completely lose sense of, everything, and then all of a sudden I'm back in my body again. So, yeah, just maybe cues for trying to feel like I'm staying here, present, as opposed to feeling like somehow I just disappeared somewhere. Yeah, I think it's a, usually what you're describing is kind of a a transitioning towards sleepiness, kind of, and it can be very pleasant, because it's like, it's almost dreamy, uh, quality and uh, kind of disconnected, which for addicts that's also kind of pleasing. You know, kind of like, well, I don't know. I only had heroin a couple times. I didn't like it because it made me throw up. I figured if I was going to throw up, I should do it after having fun. <laughs> but anyway, um, but uh, it has a little of that sort of opiated quality to it. I think um, so. It's it's really a clue that. Uh, that yeah, you, if you if you're aware, if you sort of feel that slipping in, that you kind of try to bring yourself back, you know, just kind of sit up and try to snap yourself out of it. You might open your eyes at that point. Um, I was actually, I'm I'm mentoring some people in a mindfulness teacher training program and doing it all online, and 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 this was kind of uh, like a question I was using. Uh, asking the my mentees to kind of address like how how to talk to people about sleepiness uh, because it's very common uh, and um, and it you know it sort of comes in various different ways sometimes you just conk out other times you're just kind of like on the edge and then there is this dreamlike state they call it the Tibetans call it sinking mind which has a kind of nice image to it. It's like, you're like, whoa, in sort of a different dimension. And and one of the things I was suggesting to my mentees, uh, which is not really a word that, uh, I don't know if it's a word, but it's, the, it's like sponsee. If you type that into Microsoft Word, it, it'll highlight it as not being a word. But anyway, um, what I was kind of emphasizing to them was the idea not so much of like telling people how to not fall asleep or how to work with being, even like try to get out of being sleepy, but rather, uh, you know, encouraging people to be aware of the states and and the the sort of, especially like when it's you're starting to feel that because mindfulness of sleepiness can actually help us to be less reactive to that those those states in in ordinary life, you know, because uh, 
tiredness, we know, is like part of halt, right? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And so it's a trigger for relapse or for binging. Particularly, I think, people with eating disorders tend to binge when they're tired, when they're alone. So that covers two of those. Um, now, maybe maybe they're not angry, but they're presumably hungry, but maybe not even hungry, but lonely and tired. And and even so, and and even like people drink and take drugs, often with sort of a background impulse or drive that's like they're tired. They're trying to like get through that energy and and, and change their energy, um, so that when we, I, I mean, and those are extreme examples, but but just this is part of what we're trying to do with this practice is sort of. Uh, tune into different states and become more familiar with them so that they don't control us so much so that we become less reactive to them whether it's tiredness or anger or uh, sadness or anxiety that we can kind of catch and go oh that's a feeling you know it's a physical feeling or it's a mental feeling or you know it's a combination I can be with that it's okay I don't have to do something stupid or act out or something destructive so it, it's interesting because you know there's a tendency to think of something as simple as oh I'm falling asleep when I meditate as like well then just you know do this so that you won't be falling asleep but the principle of mindfulness is that the first question is always not how do I change this but how do I be with this and, and our habit as humans and particularly as addicts is how do I control this? You know, and, and, we, and mindfulness practice is trying to encourage us to shift out of that sort of, I don't know if it's a paradigm, but shift out of that orientation toward our experience, which is that I want to f- control things into can I just be with it? And that inclines us then towards equanimity and balance uh, rather than being in a constant struggle with how things are. It's a lot. So, in a way, the meditation is like a, a time when we can train ourselves to within that quality of kind of acceptance and balance and non-reactivity, and then hopefully take that training out into our lives. Oh, there's a hand up in the front. Okay, doesn't bite. And can everybody hear me? Sort of. Great. Okay, perfect. Um, when you're meditating, you you talked a little bit when about when I'm meditating, or when someone is meditating. In general. Okay. In general, when is it is it common or normal to experience? somewhat of a sound that may not be uh, there, but like, for example, the lights in the room, right, they they make a hum. It's a certain frequency, mm-hmm. right? And I can't hear that frequency anymore, but young people can hear it. I can definitely hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and often my mind uh, will trick me into thinking I'm hearing something of a similar frequency, like um, 
like a, almost like a sing-songy thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's almost as if someone's playing a type of a flute, maybe far in the distance, but it's not really happening, but it's what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. Is, is that sort of a, a common thing? Yeah, to, yeah. To into something like that? Yeah. That's an, that's an interesting one. Uh, Can you elaborate on it? Um, I don't know. Explain, uh, what, what I will say is that meditation at times, particularly as the mind gets a little quieter, can alter our perception. So that, uh, yeah, we're... Uh, um, there, there may be like there's a there's a sound that many people hear just in their ears, which that um, there's different names for it, um, but the the in the Hindu practice they call it the nada sound, which is interesting because of course in Spanish that's like sort of a perfect name for it. It's the nothing sound. The the um, Ajahn Sumedho calls it the sound of silence, and that's what he's—he's he's a famous Buddhist monk, uh, an American Buddhist monk, and that's what he meditates on, instead of meditating on his breath. But it's—it's it's there. What you're talking about is kind of one degree from there. It's kind of like maybe there's a sound, but then your mind makes something more of it. Uh, it, it this happens. In, in different uh, ways. It happens in hearing. It happens in, um, I forget what the word is, but the, the, the feeling of the body. Like you, your body can start to feel very heavy or it can feel really long or it can feel like it's shrunk. You know, uh, so, the, so what I'm, again, this, these mind states, these particularly concentration states, alter our perception. And so it's what it's pointing to, to some extent, is that the way we experience the world is just one version, and it's an accepted version of the world. But it's not necessarily like that. Right? We're we're trained to. This is why when people take acid or take hallucinogens, they kind of get these insights like, "Whoa, whoa, that's." Like things are, don't seem to be the way they I thought they were, uh, and and we realize that the way we experience the world is deeply conditioned. We're trained to see things certain ways, to understand things certain ways, to, and to even experience things. Uh, you know, I didn't think much of that movie. Uh, what was it? What the bleep do you know? Was that the name of it? Is anybody? Wow! Did it fade into people's memory that fast? Wow. Okay, well, it, it was kind of silly. I think it was silly, but it was kind of based on somebody's, you know, research, like whatever, fringy research. The, but the claim, which was interesting, and, and I don't believe it's true, but the claim was the Native Americans who were in what we now call North America, when Columbus arrived, they couldn't see his ships because they had never seen anything like that. Like, but, the, but this is pointing to the same kind of thing, that if you, you know, I mean, have you ever thought about, like, what a, a person in ancient times would think? I mean, I think of this sometimes, when you're outside and you're, like, just walking through the woods and a plane goes over, and you think about, 
like what would a, would have someone who had never been exposed to that like think like they they would experience it differently from the way we do so you just realize that condi- that perception is conditioned um, but since we're practicing mindfulness the question isn't you know why does that happen it's just can i be with that can i be with that experience and be undisturbed by it can i just observe it and experience it so check it out thank you sometimes i just feel like i'm making all this shit up but <laughs> I, i'm not sure no because I, I there's there actually there is a term for hearing music it's called the music of the spheres has anybody ever heard that term music of the spheres and this is i think what also where this term comes from when people are in very deep states sometimes they start to hear like choirs and, and stuff um i don't know yeah. <laughs> maybe uh, you know as a musician i hear a lot of stuff uh in my head but uh i've had a couple of moments when i was deep into a retreat where some stuff kind of came yeah Oh, okay. Kevin, I had a question about um, actually trains of thought. Trains of thought? And by that I mean I'll have a thought. Choo-choo? We'll turn into a train and the train will leave the station. Yes. Can you comment? (laughs) Uh, Where does it go? (laughs) How do I let it go? I mean, after it leaves, are, are you on the train? No, but the topic that is on the train stays with me. It's kind of mysterious. How is it that we wake up to knowing that we're having a thought? It's, you know, all I can say is somewhere in there we have the intention to be present. And there's like these two competing energies one is this urge to think, you know, this kind of just ongoing energy of thought. And then there's this intention we've set to be present. And sort of the, the power of the thought sort of rises up and takes us away. And then at a certain point, like, the intention kind of comes back. Or how that happens, why that happens... I can't really say, but uh, there's, we have very little uh, hope once we're on the train. You know, we just have to wait until, you know, the next station. Uh, I don't know where the metaphor goes, but, uh, you know, it just, it, it, there's not much you can do. And that's why there's really no point in beating yourself up for thinking. That's like. You, you you know you catch yourself. Wow, I just was on that long string. What's wrong with me? What kind of I'm a bad meditator? The uh, because the other view is, hey, I just woke up. This is a moment when I should be appreciative of the fact that the thought just kind of popped, and I'm I'm back. So why should I beat myself up now? I should have beat myself up when I was in it, but I couldn't because I didn't know I was in it. So it's too late. 
So yeah, it, that's I think one of the really wiser ways of of talking about how to respond to that moment of waking up is, oh, I just woke up. That's great. I'm back. Okay, let's let's continue on rather than looking back now and going, oh yeah, I was thinking, God, what's wrong with me? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Oh, another question. What would you say to the person who cannot stop observing their thoughts, breath by breath, being stuck in their head and unable to get into their body? I'd say hi. <laughs> what Welcome would you say to, to the person who experiences an enormous amount of resistance to letting go and accepting the positive experience right in front of them while meditating, who then becomes angry at their inability to enjoy the opportunity because this person normally has zero problem with entering a Zen-like state. I'd say stop talking about yourself in the third person. (laughs) And... You know, this, this takes time and training and practice to to really make progress, to kind of break through those deeply conditioned, you know, deeply ingrained habits. Um, You know, thinking is this powerful uh, force. The human thought is the most powerful force outside of sort of weather <laughs> and the sun stuff like that on this planet you know it's incredibly powerful and it's it's what brought about you know the human civilization what like it or not you know the the good and the bad and and it's what's allowed humans it's our capacity to think is what has allowed us to become masters again for the good or the bad of this planet and so it's not going to give up easily. You know, it's a, it's a powerful force uh, that we depend on. It's an evolutionary force that, that has saved us. It's protected us. You know, it's what keeps the lions and tigers and bears out there, you know, uh, that it keeps us from being eaten. Uh, and, and so that, that primal uh, survival mechanism that is thought doesn't just turn off because we say nicely, please, I'd like to be quiet. It's like, no, you're not going to be quiet because if you stop thinking, the lions and tigers and bears are going to get you. You know, you're going to, there's this primal fear that we're going to actually die or be threatened, that we are under threat or in danger when we stop thinking. So that's one of the, one of the, the first, like, wall and kind of block that we have to deal with. So instead of saying, oh, I'm going to like jump over that wall or I'm going to go around that wall, we come up and we you know, let me feel this wall. I'm going to be with this wall. I'm going to be with this fear. I'm going to be with this experience, this block, this struggle. I mean, can I just, what happens if I breathe that? You know, What happens if I feel that? There's There's that kind of engagement rather than trying to avoid it or suppress it and then there are tools for just really uh, just bringing the mind back bringing the mind back
and bringing the mind here. One of the ways, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of meditative tools, I, th- I think one of the most helpful ones for that kind of struggle is to do what's called sweeping or scanning the body. So just you start to just feel a sensation in your head, feel your ears or your mouth or your tongue, and feel, you know, what do you, what do you feel? You know, just scan through your body, see what do you feel. Can you feel your shoulders? Can you feel your arms? Can you feel your hands? Can you feel your stomach? Uh, private parts, legs, feet. Can you feel your face? Can you feel your shoulder? You know, you kind of, you just keep going through your body over and over. Because that's the most, like, grounding practice. And and one of the things about that is that you're, the mind, you keep moving the mind so that, because uh, when you stop and try to be like, okay, I'm just going to be with this simple thing, the breath, it's kind of like a vacuum you know, it's kind of like a space opens up and the thoughts jump in. But if you keep intentionally moving the the mind, moving the attention through the body, it kind of keeps you a, enough kind of distracted. It's like reverse distraction in a way. Uh, to that, It doesn't give the space for the thoughts to break in. So that's that's a meditative tool, I would, you know, a meditation practice that you might try. But the rest of it is really just showing up and it's putting in the time. There's something about sitting still that's very powerful. Sitting still with your eyes closed for five minutes, for one minute, for 30 seconds, you know, is, is powerful. And then as you can gradually stretch that, it, there's a point at which you, it starts to work, you know. And, and there, there's just no other way around it other than to put in the time to do that. Yeah, thanks. I hope your friend is, you know, <laughs> a success. So let's take a little break, and uh, we'll take about ten minutes, and then come back. For...
just so much easier because it instantly goes right to it. Oh. You don't have to like read. You just you say, oh, I have 10 minutes. I want to do meditation. You find one here. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I won't. I'll chop to do going home with us. Thank you. 
We lose some people. They didn't. They they left after the break. They just came to meditate. Um, uh, okay. Well, welcome back. I guess I didn't introduce myself. If people don't know who I am, I'm Kevin Griffin. And if you do know who I am, then I'm also Kevin Griffin. But um, I. Uh, oh man, I'm being attacked by the microphone cable back here. Um, Oh, I see what it did. That's not good. 
think I see. Anyway, um, I've been attacked by bigger microphone cables, so <laughs> this one isn't that bad. One time I was, uh, we were, uh, I was when I was lived in Vermont and played with this Afrofusion band, quite remarkable band. Um, actually, I was playing with the lead singer recently. Uh, I should have brought some of the flyers. We're doing a gig in March, but I'll, I'll bring some next month. Um, anyway. Back in the day, this was 1979 or something. We were doing we were doing this pretty big gig, like a thousand people or so, and, and um, it came to my guitar solo in this one song. And the lead singer, who had a sort of knack for things like this, like leapt towards me, stepped on my fuzz box, disconnected my guitar from the fuzz box. So just as I was like. That's what it sounded like, yeah, and that was disappointing. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I was kind of reflecting for the last few days of what I was going to talk about tonight, and, and, you know, this, as I mentioned, sort of the 12 steps and how the, this class, one of the things we we do some to some extent is kind of cycle through the steps. So, and, and I thought about talking about step one, but I, I came something else kind of came up for me that I that I wanted to sort of tackle tonight. And and this isn't about the steps, although it might evolve into that, and it will evolve into that to some extent. But it's um, but it is about uh, beginning. Uh, so uh, I figured it for January to talk about uh, something that's about beginning or sort of a, a, like a root question, a core question, and and that that question is kind of around what are we doing here? You know, wh- what is this that we're doing? Uh, this Dharma and recovery, and and even sort of, I'd actually like to talk a little bit about how this evolved. Uh, in my experience, and, and um, so that you can sort of understand uh, how how we've arrived here, maybe. Um, and and those of you who have, who have sat with me or read my book sort of know some of my story about how I you know I practiced I did Buddhist practice before I got sober, went on some long retreats early on in the early eighties. And the, and then sort of, you know, things kind of fell apart, uh, which in some ways I think was related to going on a lot of retreats and not being uh, really emotionally, psychologically, spiritually ready for the kind of that depth of practice. And, and there, there's a way in which when we kind of overreach in our spiritual uh, path, if we're not really prepared, that it can actually... Um, disrupt our lives and, and um, you know um, it's hard to sort of explain that but uh, it's like getting more more wisdom than your than your nervous system can handle you're kind of short out you know uh, it's like the, the fuses blow so you know I go on a three month retreat and you know six months later I'm like throwing everything away and just living homeless, 
and on the streets of Venice Beach, you know, which is actually a good place to be homeless, but as as homeless places go. But um, you know, so it, it took me a while to rebuild my life enough to get sober. It was like the way I view it is I was below my bottom, you know, and I had to get up enough so that like it made sense to stop drinking and using because like. When you're living on the street, it really doesn't make that much sense to get sober. I, I don't know if any of you guys, some of you I'm sure have had those kinds of experiences. It's like you're just trying to survive. So when I got to the point where I had a job and a place to live again, then it kind of like rebuilt to the point where it's like, oh, and this drinking and using thing, that's like, you know, really not working. And And there is some irony to this more than a little bit of irony. And again, something that I know some of you experienced, some of you that I know, um, that, you know, on the one hand, I thought I was like really spiritual and like a really serious meditator. And on the other hand, I was still like having blackout, drunk and and, um, and all the rest of it. Um, and, and so, you know, when I got sober, there was a lot of humility you know, I, I had to, and again, I, I don't, when I say that, I don't think there's anything unusual or original about that. Uh, to get sober, we have humility. It comes way before step seven, uh, where it shows up in the steps, you know, to to um, say I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict or I or that my life is unmanageable. Or, you know, to say any of that takes some humility and, and, uh, and that's a really good thing as far as I'm concerned uh, but it it also meant then that I kind of ran into this uh, I didn't so much see it as a problem but I could characterize it as a problem which was that I had this Buddhist thing going on that I was really devoted to on a certain level as much as it may have been like a little out of whack it, it was also sincere and and then I had this 12-step thing, and they didn't look alike to me. So it, it, it really, some, some people have come up to me and said, over the years, have said, oh, like, yeah, Buddhism and the 12 steps. As soon as I saw the 12 steps, I was like, they're so Buddhist. And I was like, really? Like, I didn't see that. Uh, and... But the way I felt was I need both of these things. I knew I needed recovery, and I didn't really know what the steps meant or what you were, was going to really happen with them. I just knew I needed to go to these meetings, and the steps were part of them, so I was going to just do that. And that was, that was really the humility, right? But at the same time, it was like, you know, but I've still got this Buddhism in my back pocket, and... And that was that part of me that wasn't humble, <laughs> that like came into meetings and like was like, these people with their steps, like I'd like to see them sit a three month retreat, you know, like that's really spiritual, you know, uh, and <laughs> and to some extent, then. When I show, when I first would show up at so-called eleventh step meetings, that attitude was somewhat reinforced. 
I can remember going to, there was a meeting in Santa Monica that I would go to on Sunday nights. It was like 6 o'clock, I think, at the, I forget when the name of the Ocean Park something. Literally, they meditated for five minutes. And then people talked for like an hour and a half about how hard that was to meditate for five minutes. And so that was where I was like, there's something missing here, right? I don't want to be too judgmental, but, you know, I feel like, you know, there's this 11th step. I'm not sure you people are really getting it. So so early on, within a couple years, I think at, at about two years sober, you know, I started... Uh, uh, we started a meeting with some friends where we would meditate for 20 minutes and and I started to talk about Buddhism and took people to some of the retreats I was going with going to and um, but I still couldn't I didn't actually understand the Dharma enough to make the connections with recovery or with the steps and I probably didn't understand the steps enough either. But I think that where, you know, the first real connection for me, I th- and I think that the heart of the connection between these two is not the 12 steps. It's not Buddhism and the 12 steps. It's addiction. And it's how the Buddha characterizes the the cause of suffering how we how we create suffering and that's the thing that really became kind of the the kind of way in that that seemed like the real the really direct connection between uh, the for me the pro the AA program or the twelve step program and and Dharma, and seeing that the Buddha, what he was describing was not supposed to be addiction. Supposedly what he was describing was the human condition. But it correlates so much with addiction, saying the cause of suffering is clinging, that craving and clinging are the things that really uh, are the uh, triggers for suffering that it, it was like oh that's that's the same as addiction right and and it's interesting Vimalasara who's a wonderful uh, Buddhist teacher who's also in recovery and, and has written about recovery um, she has a book called Eight Step Dharma or eight-step recovery, sorry, eight-step recovery. And the eight steps are not the eight-fold path, and they're not, uh, you have to read it. It's, anyway, it's very good. Um, she says, Buddhism is the earliest or the oldest recovery program. There it is. You know. So she's making this connection to in, in a nice, very direct way. So if this is kind of the starting point where it's like, I guess, 
the way I felt about it and the way I feel about it is that there's something friendly between these two approaches. Like they're friends, like they get along, <laughs> they agree in, with this, their basic principle of, of life, of, of, uh, of dealing with challenges is, this, is the same. It's like clinging to stuff, getting stuck with attachment, being addicted. That's, that's where suffering comes. But that was only, you know, a way in. And and what happened for me was that um, as I I worked the steps, as I said, I kind of kept them separate, but they started like kind of coming closer together, uh, partly because as I got more comfortable in my recovery... I felt more of a pull back to Buddhism. And I think this is, again, a very common uh, recovery experience, which is that in the beginning it was like, I'm just going to do it the way it's, they're telling me to do it. I'm just going to work this program because I need it. And I've screwed everything. I've The decisions I've made have been unwise, to say the least. And... And so I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what this is about, but I'm just going to do it. And then after a while, it's like, yeah, I'm doing it and it's working. And I really like Buddhism. <laughs> and and for other people, it's, oh, I really want to go back to the church I was raised in or I, I want to go to temple or, you know, people get drawn back maybe to something that's that was a, a core interest of theirs, or, or as I, as or for some people, it's going back to the religion they were raised in, uh, and and so that partly that comes out of a sense of confidence, right? That okay, on the, on the one hand, I'm starting to feel like my recovery is pretty solid, and I don't have to just do it by the book. I can kind of expand from there, and also. After you're clean for a while, um, you get your uh, your brain back. You know, you get your capacity to kind of think. And as a kind of skeptic, and you know, somebody who was probably at one time an atheist. You know, I, I was I was okay with God, but it you know that wasn't really my path. You know, I could I could use I could use the word, but the but you know that language wasn't really my path, and uh, and um, you know I started to kind of sort of question. It wasn't exactly questioning the steps, but it was like really the question was, does this really fit with Buddhism? Does it go beyond the idea that clinging and suffering are you know that that the first and second noble truth are sort of the same as uh, talking about addiction, is there more to it, and can I can I bring them together? And, I, and so I went on a retreat, and I've described described this, I think, in one breath at a time. Uh, I went on a retreat um, over Christmas uh, in uh, 1992, and at that time I had moved up here uh, to be a student at Cal, and and um, then I was kind of. When moving to the Bay Area kind of even more ignited my uh, my uh, connection with with Buddhism because it was so 
uh, prevalent here. And, and I knew uh, James Barras and I knew Jack Cornfield and I practiced with them. And, and so being close to them uh, and Spirit Rock was just, was just starting uh, at that time. And um, so over that Christmas holiday break from school, you know, I am a 42-year-old freshman, um, or maybe I was a, no, I wasn't a freshman because I did, I transferred as a junior, so I was either a junior or a senior. Anyway, the details uh, are not that important. I, I, took a, I, I took to young people who were sober, who were at school, and we went down to Southern California to sit with Ruth Dennison, who, if you've never heard of her, she was an incredible uh, Buddhist teacher, a, a German woman. There's a beautiful biography of her uh, by Sandy Boucher. And she was somebody I had known and practiced with and, and really loved. Uh, and, and she had a Christmas retreat that you could just drop in on. You could just go and show up for a week. And it went on for a month. But So we went down for a week or so. And, and at the end of that retreat, she took the three of us, as we were leaving, we were leaving before the end of the retreat, she took the three of us aside and said, you know, I want to just check in with you before you leave the retreat, which is very sweet of her. And and I described what I was feeling. I said, you know, at that point I'm seven years sober. And I, I said, you know, I really feel now that Buddhism is my path. I really believe in this path. I really trust in this path. And she said to me, um, well, you're at the third noble truth. And I was like, that's great. you know." And then we left and we're driving away and my friends were like, so what's the third noble truth? And I was like, um, yeah, third noble truth means that uh, it's that there is a way to end suffering. And my friend, Dan, who was with me said, oh, that's like the second step. You came to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore us to sanity. You believe that what you said to Ruth is like you really believe in Buddhism now. And that was kind of like, bing! Oh, wow, there's a step two. In, you know, Not just a step one in Buddhism, right? It was sort of all I had gotten to. And, and that kind of really began this, this exploration where, where it became more than just, oh, this is nice, Buddhism and recovery, like I'm meditating and I'm reading about Buddhism and I'm going on retreats and I, I feel spiritual and, I'm, you know, it was like, wait, can I actually, can I actually bring these together for myself? Um, you know, can they, can there actually be a, a way of understanding this whole uh, interlocking sort of interlocking these two systems. So the, uh, you know, I, I wasn't so much thinking that I was going to talk about this as a, as my own story, but, but I'm sort of trying to get to maybe this idea that um, what, why, why we need to do this, do we need to do this? Um, because I've I, sometime recently, I can't remember when it was, someone said to me something like, well, you know, there's no, like maybe I just met him and I told him what I do and I, I don't know what circumstance that would be, but 
they said something like, well, there's no need, you don't need to do that. I mean, like something like the 12 steps are enough or something like that. And I think, yeah, they can be, right? I, I'm not, I've never suggested that uh, the 12 steps wouldn't be enough. In fact, I, I say that pretty explicitly in the beginning of one breath at a time. But there's something about uh, the Dharma that to me um, reveals something about the 12 steps. And at the same time, there's something about the 12 steps that I think enhance, can enhance a Dharma practice. And I, and I know this isn't true for everyone. In fact, you know, the whole sort of refuge recovery, recovery dharma movement is sort of suggestive of the idea that, well, we could, don't really need the 12 steps at all. We could just do it with Buddhism. And I agree that you can. I, I, I don't think that's uh, any less of a good idea than just working the 12 steps. But I guess, you know, in some ways... I got here just because of my own journey, which, you know, there wasn't a Buddhist version of recovery in 1985, you know. Uh, and so so I used the steps. But um, there's a couple things in the steps that uh, are to me kind of more direct and impactful than the way the Dharma is usually taught. One is God. <laughs> and this is what what uh, interested me about uh, what I kind of was trying to get into in my second book, that um, the idea of... So in Buddhism, we have the idea of taking refuge. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And that's kind of uh, your way of stating your commitment to the path, saying, I'm, you know, I'm on board with this. In the 12 steps, we say, I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. There's something about that statement that has more force and impact, I think, than saying, I'm taking refuge in the Buddha. So, to me, if I say, I'm turning my will and my life over to the care of the Dharma, that's just a statement that's more powerful to me, that refuge is kind of like, uh, okay, you're, the Dharma will protect me, but it feels a little bit like I can step out of that if I want to, in a way. I'm not all in. Maybe this is just me. But turning my will and my life over, now I'm all in, you know. And, and, and I think that's a really good way to approach the Dharma, you know, whether you're in recovery or not. I think that's a, a really good way to think about your commitment. Because I've, and frankly, you know, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of those, uh, what do they call them, bedstand Buddhists, you know, with the Pema Chodron books there piled up and the Sylvia Borstein and all the good books there. And maybe they come to Spirit Rock, you know, on a Monday night and they have nice scarves and, you know, 
they talk the talk and they have Buddhist statues around their house, but, you know, are you really turning your will and your life over? Like, this is, this is not a joke, right? This is not like a halfway deal. So there's a power to that in the steps. That it's, and, and this is why I love working with people in recovery because for us, our spiritual practice is not something for, to make us look good. You know, We started out our spiritual practice by saying, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. And that doesn't look good to anybody. Right? So we're not impressing anybody. We're doing it to save our lives. You know? And if I can really break the Buddhist principles, we're doing it to save our souls, you know, and, and, uh, because in Buddhism, there's no soul, but, you know, that's, that's what it is, you know, our, our, we're saving, saving something deeper than just our physical life, you know, we're saving our spirit, our soul, from the, you know, the, the living death that was our addiction, and all, all of that. So uh, I think we, we make a kind of commitment and engagement that uh, people who are kind of don't have our problems don't necessarily have to make. And it's the advantage, right? This is the classic, uh, you know, can, uh, the, the weird kind of advantage that those who suffer are forced into spiritual growth in a way that people who don't suffer aren't. And it's sort of, you know, it has the kind of the corollary with those who are born into wealth, who don't really learn how to work, right? Because they never have to work. It's like everything comes easily. So you think, oh, it must be great to have to, to be born and never have to work. But, you know, what it's like to have a life where you don't have to work? Like, what makes life worthwhile, uh, you know, is work, right? And I, I don't mean digging ditches, but like finding purpose, uh, Although digging ditches is certainly uh, valuable work. So I, I, sh- I take that back. I do mean digging ditches. Um, so I think that, you know, some, a lot of my passion for this that goes back to those early years of recovery and, you know, to say that seven years sober is early recovery you can only say that when you've been sober five times seven which I will be this year um, it is uh, that I felt that there was something that these two could give to each other you know and I was living it you know it was this gift that I I felt I had gotten and, uh, you know, and I would always, in meetings, I would always be telling people about meditating, you know. And I would teach people to meditate, even, you know, just randomly. Uh, I taught my mother to meditate. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I would go to Buddhist groups and I would feel that there was something superficial, you know. Cause, and I would meet people who would, like, be Buddhist practitioners there would be all this dysfunction in their lives, you know, and they would come to the same meditation every group every week, but, you know, all the rest of their lives and we're not really working. So the other connection, I mean, the interest and the other thing that really, uh, I love connecting Buddhism and recovery is the precepts, you know, 
because this is again something that's like at the you know on retreat if you if those of you who have been on retreat you know at the beginning of the retreat the teachers will give the five precepts and maybe they'll have you recite them right and everybody takes the precepts and that's the last you hear of the re- of the precepts and you can go to a meditation group every week for a year and never heard the, hear the word precepts you know whereas people in recovery well, the fifth precept, not to use intoxicants for addicts and alcoholics, well, that's, you know, life or death for us. But we also make a commitment not to lie, cheat, or steal. Right? So that covers pretty much the other precepts. So for us, the precepts, like, come first. You know, in fact, you know, that's why meditation is step 11. But really, the precepts are step one. You know, and they're step four, and they're step nine. They they permeate the steps, and people don't realize that the karmic foundation of spiritual growth is following the precepts. Right? It's not meditating. You know, that's not what the Buddha taught. He didn't say, "Oh, just meditate, and all your spiritual growth will happen." No, he said, "You've got to clean up your act." You know? You've got to live skillfully. Or, or you're wasting your time meditating if you're going out lying, cheating, and stealing you know, in the meantime. You know, or using intoxicants, getting loaded. You know, or you know, sleeping with your, you know, whatever, someone you shouldn't be sleeping with. It's another one of those euphemisms, right? Sleeping with doesn't mean sleeping with. That's weird. Like there will be a time, sometime at 500 years from now, people will read things about, like from literature from this time. They'll say, "What does this mean? Sleeping with? Oh, oh, it means having sex. Why do they say sleep? You can't have sex when you're asleep. Why did they call it that? And why do they go to a restroom? To you know, what are they? They're not resting. Anyway, I'm sorry. I digress, but you know, that's what I do. So. You know, for, for me, there's this just beautiful interweaving that uh, that supports each other, and, and that that uh, that's so powerful. And uh, you know, I can't. I guess I'm repeating myself, but but it what's it's what makes me much more interested in teaching Dharma to people in recovery than to to people who aren't recovery, because. We understand suffering. <laughs> it's not theoretical. It's not like, oh yeah, like I stubbed my toe. You know, we understand the cause of suffering. You know, because you know, if you go to a typical Buddhist group, it'll be like, oh, you're craving. Like if you know, like if you're addicted to chocolate, it's like, no, come on, like it's <laughs> not a thing. You know. <laughs> So, so we know, we understand suffering. We understand the cause of suffering. We understand that it ends when we stop clinging. You know, and we realize, oh, you need to take action. Right? That's called the Eightfold Path. Right? Oh, you mean they have like steps in Buddhism too? Oh, I want to check that out. Right? Oh. And, and not just, oh, I want to learn to meditate, but I want to see what all of them are. You know? So it's, uh, 
yeah, that's that's why I'm here. You know, that's what I'm doing here. I'm trying to help people to make the connections that I've made and and get the inspiration that I've gotten and and the the benefit that I've gotten. Uh, it's a huge, huge gift. Uh, Well, one of the things I was talking about my mentees uh, and and helping them like figure out how to give Dharma talks. One of the things I told them it's a really good idea to like figure out how you're going to end your talk before you you know if you just have an, a beginning and an ending, like you're good you know. But I, I told them that's like one of my shortcomings. Is <laughs> I always forget to come up with an ending. Yes, you know, if you're really a, a good spirit rock teacher, you have a poem, you know, and and you read the poem at the end. And what you do is you read the poem, and then you go, "Let's sit for a minute," <laughs> and then everybody sits. And then after it gets really quiet, then you read the last line of the poem one more time, and it's like really effective. So just imagine <laughs> that I just read this beautiful Rumi poem and everybody's feeling really spiritual. And we'll just sit for a moment. And actually we'll do a little meta practice. One of the gratitude practices of Buddhism is to reflect on the tradition and the lineage. So we think of the Buddha and his heroic work and his breakthrough into awakening. And then his years of teaching to transmit his wisdom. We connect with our gratitude for that gift. And we realize that the fact that we're able to even know of his teaching is because of the lineage that followed him. We have gratitude to his students, the monks who first preserved his teachings 2,500 years ago. And we remember that they began to chant 
his words after he passed away. And for several hundred years, that's the only way these teachings were kept alive, one generation after another. Passed on, word of mouth, an oral tradition. A tradition that could have been broken at any time. But through some remarkable, maybe accident of history, stayed alive. Eventually those teachings spread throughout Asia, translated into many languages, generation by generation. They were written down, preserved in different languages. Fifteen hundred years after the Buddha's death, all the Buddhist monks in India were killed and all their monasteries destroyed by an invasion from the West. But fortunately, the teachings were preserved in those other countries, passed on generation by generation. To think that there may have been places where there was just one living monk who was teaching some young follower, passing the teachings on, keeping them alive, precious, this gift that's been brought down to us. And in our current age, all of these traditions have been brought together. We have the capacity now to know of all of them, all their different variations on the Dharma teachings. We can see each of their lineages which are still the same. The same that the first followers of the Buddha learned and taught and practiced. So we have been given this gift and it is our responsibility to keep it alive for our generation and for the next generation to follow. Our practice is not for ourselves alone. 
is for the benefit of all beings born and to be born. May all beings understand the cause of suffering, understand the end of suffering. May they follow the path to the end of suffering. Thank you all. Nice to see you all. We'll be back in February. And I'll be at uh, the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery on the fourth Tuesday of this month. It should be, let's see, 27th. Because the first was a Wednesday. So the fourth Tuesday. Well, it's on my website. I hope you... Drop in over there if you're in the neighborhood. Drive safely. <laughs>